0: You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits. What's up, rookies, and welcome to The Upland Rookie podcast. I am your host, Will Larson, and as always, this is presented by Upland Brits. Yes, Upland Brits, the thing that started this all for me. Fun fact, uh, Upland Brits used to be called Gage the Brittany. Yes, it was Gage the Brittany was my Instagram page back when I got my first bird dog. Um, we started it maybe a couple weeks, actually before we picked him up from the breeder. And just thought it'd be fun to kind of, uh, I don't know, create a dog account just to keep up with some, some uh pictures of the puppy and it's grown into a freaking podcast now and something that I'm really passionate about. I really love doing, uh, running both the Instagram pages, the podcast, and just sharing my life, sharing my story. Um, again, my passion really, uh, for hunting and bird dogs, um, really has been a fun outlet for me to, um, just, do on the side, uh, on the the side of my other full-time job and and, uh, being a husband and having kids and being a dad, all the things that come with it, um, it really has been a fun outlet to uh, pour into, uh, be creative, something I can own and control and decide what I do and post and not post or say or not say or who I interview. It's been a really just fun passion project for me. And so I hope you guys can feel that um, in these episodes. I hope you can see that from um, Instagram. I I truly am just being uh, myself, authentic, real with you guys. I'm not trying to um, put on something or be someone I am not. So anyways, welcome to the Upland Rookie podcast. (laughs) This is going to be a fun episode. Uh, Today's episode, I got Josh um, from Trinity Bretons on. So it's going to be a fun episode, uh, chatting with Josh, but first a word from our sponsors. Yuka Nuba baby. I'm sorry. That was my best Bob Owens impression. And I don't think I did it justice, but anyways, um, Yuka Nuba, if you want to get everything your dog's got, then you need nutrition that holds nothing back to help unleash your dog's maximum potential check out the new Yukanuba premium performance lineup at yucanubasportingdog.com. Boom. Trinity Bretons, which you're going to hear a lot more from on this episode. They have a whole host of things that they offer. Uh, obviously puppies, the Trinity Upland Academy, started dogs, stud service, and a whole lot of stuff. And they respond really quick. If you ever have questions, about the breed, about upcoming breedings, training, reach out to Josh or Jeff, and they will get back to you right away, which is really, really cool. Great customer service. Um, Also, Pointer Traditions. Yes, Pointer Traditions. Guys, I typically have just used a good old-fashioned leather collar on all my dogs. I've used some synthetic ones as well, um, which are are great. I, I think they... Yeah, they're great. But uh I've got these new Pointer Tradition collars for both my dogs. Uh I contacted them over there and they made me some custom sizes, which is pretty freaking awesome. Not sure if I should be sharing that publicly, but uh that was a huge factor for me because the sizes on the website um just for my Brits, for my little female, for Gage, I wanted the the perfect fitting collar and The the standard sizes on the site, I think, would have been just fine, actually. Um, But, for example, for when I wanted a one-inch thick, uh, basically a puppy size collar, but a one-inch thick um, collar, and they made that for me. So, I'm super grateful. Um, Bird straps. You saw me post some photos in North Dakota and Montana using this bird strap, and it's freaking awesome. So, check it out. Uh, I do have a promo code for Pointer Traditions, uh, ROOKIE. 15 rookie 15 is going to save you 15% off your order at pointertraditions.com. Go show them some love. Uh, I have a new sponsor I am going to roll out next week uh, on next week's episode that I am super, super excited about. Um, I'm going to um, just talk more in depth why I am partnering with this company. Um, just a little bit more of the heart behind it. And, and I will just expand and explain a little bit of my thought process. Um, so that is coming in next week's episode. So stay tuned. Uh, you not going to want to miss that one as well. Um, oh, all right. A couple things opening segment here we go. Um, so on the old Instagram, If you're not following the Upland Rookie Podcast on Instagram, follow it there and also follow Upland Brits, but I put out a question in the stories to ask what I should talk about on the opening segment of this week's episode and you guys came through, well some of you did, one of them being my wife, yes, so I'm actually going to do two, one from the missus, she (laughs) I love how she interacts with my story sometimes. Um, She wants me to talk about how beautiful Colorado is. My goodness. How beautiful Colorado is. Um, It is pretty great. And I'm going to take a different approach to this question. Um, I mean, it is beautiful. The mountains alone, if you're into that thing, if you're into trees and nature and freaking awesome mountains and streams and just freaking beautiful scenery, then Colorado is where it's at. But please don't move here. Just please, for the love of God, do not move here. We have too many people. Home prices are through the roof. It's just don't do it, please. Um, so that's one side of Colorado. The other thing with Colorado is the, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad she asked this because I'm going to take the approach of, I am very thankful for where we are located for a bird hunter. Um, I, I might've said this before, but I can be in Kansas or Nebraska in three hours. Kansas, if I, if I have the pedal to the metal, maybe two hours and 52 minutes, um, I can, I can hunt the Colorado does have incredible bird hunting as well. Um, so, I don't want that to get overlooked either. But I can be to uh, Kansas, which is a hot spot for pheasants and bob whites, um, even some scale quail uh, down in the grasslands. Uh, Nebraska obviously has a great mixed bag um, experience in Nebraska. They have all f- uh, four species of upland birds uh, bob whites, prairie chickens, sharptail, and pheasants. Um, then I can be to South Dakota and close to six hours, maybe a little more than six to the border of South Dakota. And then, you know, up in the grasslands, great pheasant territory. So, um, th- another great opportunity, Wyoming, I think Wyoming is a sleeper state. I almost pulled the trigger and got a Wyoming license this year. Um, they have chucker huns, Sharptail, obviously sage grouse. And so that's, I mean, that could be the Wyoming border in two and a half, three hours, three hours, uh, under three hours for sure. So that's a really cool opportunity. Utah, uh, gosh, Chucker in Utah, uh, blue grouse, I think they have sage grouse as well in Utah. Um, And I know they have a short sharp tail season as well. So there are so many options just around here. And then I can, you know, Montana, I can be the Montana border in eight hours. So there's some really cool options centrally located to where we live in Colorado. So all that to say, I am very thankful where we live do I have to drive a little bit to get on wild birds here in Colorado? Yep. I do. I, it's, I don't live in freaking North Dakota or Montana where I can drive 20 minutes and be in birds. I just don't. And that's okay. I, I love where I live. My family loves where we live. And so, um, it is what it is. But anyways, that's kind of fun. It all spawned off my wife's question. How beautiful is Colorado? Funny. Um, okay. We're going to do one more question here. Um, Oh, I'm debating on two of these shot shell availability by now, wait, or too late for season already. Um, uh, not true. That's, that's a good one. Not too late for season. I don't think, I think you just have to keep looking for shells. You're just going to have to keep looking. I I have kind of a small network of buddies that, you know, if we find something in a store, we'll text each other and and grab it for each other. And, uh, you know, Venmo later, but, um, no, I, I don't think it's too late. You just got to keep your eyes peeled. Some places are going to try to rip you the Frick off and I would not give them my business for shells when I have had success, uh, finding shells at some other stores. Um, this is, this is not a plug for boss at all. I'm not sponsored by, by boss. Um, but I have had success, um, with boss shot shells. Um, I this year, I think I've bought two cases so far. And the last case I bought was just like a month and a half ago. And so, Um, check them out as well. I know there's some other companies out there, um, maybe direct to consumer stuff that you could, could pick up, uh, some retailers, of course, but no, you just have to keep looking. Uh, don't settle though. And don't get ripped off. Someone just posted today, you know, a box of, you know, Winchester six shot was like for 12 gauge, like 29 bucks for like just super, uh, bottom of the barrel, basic ammunition, which is ridiculous those kind of prices so just just look around Uh, don't give up don't let ammunition be your factor of not going out there this year um push forward (laughs) like you get just get out there get out there with your dog take a box of shells you know um and if you have to just be selective in your shots oh oh well It's, it's just kind of the year we're in right now um and yeah, just always keep your eyes peeled. You have to get to a point where you're thinking in the future. So, you know, just take this kind of, the, let's get through this season, January, February hits and start kind of thinking about next season already. I know that seems crazy, but just the, the weird environment where we are in right now with the ammunition, whatever you want to call it, shortage or whatever. Um, think about months down the road. think if you want to do clays we'll start in the summer, start stocking up in January for clays and then the closer you get to fall, like be thinking ahead of time about ammunition. And, um, I, I am thankful. I, I did kind of have that mindset for the last several years. And so I am thankful I had lots of other ammunition. Um, I definitely know it'll get me through this season, maybe even some of next season. Um, again, I don't shoot a, crap load but I, I shoot a decent amount uh throughout the hunting season so just just figure out how much you're shooting be thinking ahead um don't get caught in a buying where it's you know season opens september 1st or you know for you maybe it's november 1st whatever it might be and the night before you're like oh i need, I need any couple boxes of shells because it might be hard to find so you got to kind of keep your eyes peeled check websites um that are out there check out boss i have really really enjoyed uh, the boss shot shells uh let me know what you've been shooting i kind of just curious to see what, what you've been shooting. I know Prairie Storm's a big one boss, um, apex and some guys are shooting apex, which are really expensive as well. Um, there's some other good ones out there. Um, but yeah, shoot me a message. What are you shooting? Uh, ammunition wise? What have you found? Do you have any secrets to finding ammunition out there? Uh, again, we're, we're talking about uh, bird shot. So, if you're talking other loads, I, I mean, that's fine. You can tell me, but <laughs> I'm just focused on on bird shot. Also, I, I have quite a few uh 30 out six shells that are just laying around here. If anyone wants to buy any, anyways, um, I probably can't say that on the podcast, but I just did. Anyways, I think we're gonna jump into today's episode. Thank you for the questions. Uh, two more things real quick. Um, actually maybe one more, please, um, head over. If you're enjoying this podcast, um, I really, really, um, would appreciate, um, uh, head over to Apple podcasts and, um, just leave a, a rating and a review. Um, one to five stars, uh, obviously five would be amazing if you left that and just write a little review, um, what this podcast has meant to you, what, um, you're getting out of it, how it's impacted your life, your upland story, your bird dogs, whatever it might be. Um, I do read every single one of those reviews. Um, I think we're up to like 60, 60 reviews maybe right now, which I'm just super grateful for. Um, like I said, I read every one of those. Um, <laughs> sometimes if I'm having a bad day, I might look at one or two of them. It just, you know, it's encouraging. It's encouraging to know what I'm doing, what I'm producing here with content and podcasts. And the time I'm pouring into this, um, is impacting your lives in some way or another. So, um, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Other than, oh, and, and, uh, share it with a friend on social media. Uh, would mean a lot whether it's on Facebook or Instagram, um, share maybe one of your favorite episodes um, of the podcast so far. We're 24 episodes in now with this one. Um, yeah share share it on your stories or in a post um, and just maybe write a little hey, here's what I love about this episode give it a listen. Um, really would enjoy uh, just getting this out there even more than it already is. Uh, I'm nearing 20,000 downloads which I'm just I'm blown away at but I also don't know what that means in comparison to some of the other big ones out there. Um, again, it's not about numbers. But it's always just kind of fun to see metrics and see growth and how you invest and pour into something and see the result of how that impacts and and who it reaches. So anyways, all that to say, guys, thank you so much for your support. Thanks for uh, the messages you send me and just um, what this has meant to you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing, all that good stuff. So anyways, we're going to jump into today's podcast episode with Josh uh, from Trinity Breton. So hope you enjoy this one. Take care. Have you done South Dakota or anything?
1: I've been to South Dakota for field trials and things like that, but I've never gone and hunted exclusively. I've gone out to North Dakota where George Hickox has his summer camp. Gotcha. Uh, And I've been out there and worked birds out there, but not actually hunting. So all of that kind of region is still bucket listed for me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Was that, is that where Moose was up with him in North Dakota last year?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. uh, Summer of 2020.
0: Okay. Nice. Yeah. That was, that was incredible. So we hunted both North Dakota and Montana. Um, I stayed up in Williston, which is like far North West corner. Um, and so close to Montana. We just, we jumped back and forth quite a bit and, uh, it was awesome. Cool. Yeah. That was great, man. So are you, so you're in, you're not in Iowa. You're in Pennsylvania. Yes. Okay. That's all right. It took me forever to figure that out when I first met you guys.
1: Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, no, I'm I'm up uh, just north of Philly, uh, pastoring a church out here and then working dogs on the side. I go out to Gettysburg on Fridays and I go out to New Jersey on Saturdays. And so,
0: okay, nice. Is it kind of like Trinity Bretons of the East or just kind of your own side thing?
1: We actually have a, we have a logo made up uh, Trinity Bretons East. Oh, really? Nice. Um, but, but it's not official in any kind of format like that. It's sure but there's, yeah, there's me and I've got three guys out here who have Trinity dogs who train with me and help me out. And, and I I help them with their dogs and stuff like that. So we get together on Fridays. And then one of the guys is a field trial. He's getting into field trials with me. Oh, nice. So he, he travels around with me to different stuff and, and things like that. So. Oh, right on it. What is I'm kind of
0: curious? What is the kind of the bird dog scene in the East? Is it pretty quiet or is it bigger than people would think?
1: It is absolutely bigger than people think. It's the default is waterfowl, Hmm. right? You're on the East coast, you got ducks, you got geese, you got the best waterfowl in the country, possibly in a lot of places, North Carolina and North on the East shore. Hmm.
0: Um, wait, did you say best waterfowl in the country? Possibly?
1: Yeah. I mean, really? There are guys who travel from all over the country, all over the world to come and hunt ducks on the Eastern shore. Wow. I did not know that. Um, So yeah, they've got an, and we also have the greatest Woodcock flight.
0: I have heard of Woodcock being really, um, really as Well,
1: so it's that same kind of East coast corridor for migratory birds, Um, but ducks and Woodcock for sure. That being said, most guys have like labs, retrieving dogs, things like that. But at the same time, I was actually just talking to a friend of mine this week. Um, the Midwest doesn't have a ton of pros. We're actually talking strategically about where what trials we want to run in with our dogs to avoid the pros. Because hmm. um, they're just better at what they do than any of <laughs> us can be as, as amateurs. But so, like, the, the Mid-Atlantic region has a number of, like, the top pros in pointing dogs in the country. Wow. So it's the mid Atlantic and the Southeast. And then they, they all summer in North Dakota, Montana, et cetera. Okay. Wow. Um, But so like the, you've heard of the Tracy's I'm sure George Tracy, Mike Tracy, um, the Smiths, those guys all have camps out in the mid Atlantic and they, that's their home base for, for all of those guys. Wow. So, so there's a lot of really high end bird dog guys out here. Yeah. And then every, every amateur is mostly waterfowl guy,
0: but okay. Gotcha. Wow. Definitely, definitely bigger than than I uh, I would have thought. And probably a lot of people would have thought that's cool, man. Well, Josh, let's, let's kind of jump. Let's just jump right in. Um, tell us, tell us a little bit of who you are. Give us kind of an overview. Uh, who is Josh? Tell us a little bit about Trinity Bretons. and also first put us on the map. Where, where are you? I know we might've touched on that, but I might cut some of the beginning out. So go ahead.
1: No, for sure. So who I am, a uh, bird dog guy, I'm, I'm one of the probably first diaper to diaper um, <laughs> French Brittany guys in the country, not quite cradle to grave because my dad got into it when I was about two. Um, so I can't claim that. Um, but so I've been a bird dog guy all my life. Uh, my first memories as a child were crawling in and out of whelping kennels with, uh, you know, bitches with litters and things like that. So fantastic. Loved it all. Um, where I'm at, I'm currently North of Philly uh, in the mid Atlantic in Pennsylvania, working on running dogs, uh, getting where I can to, I go out to the Orvis, Orvis properties in Southwest Pennsylvania. I get out to the English Setter Club of America, the second oldest club in the United States for what it's worth for bird dogs hmm. um, in New Jersey and, and just try to work with guys out there. Um, But uh, I mean, all of that is just really about finding ways to get my dogs in the eyes of guys who've done this for a long time and on grounds where I can develop them and enhance what they do on a day-to-day basis. And that all comes out of a love that was born out of hunting wild pheasants and wild quail in Iowa, you know, from the time I could walk until the time I left the nest, so to speak, to go be, be my own man.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. Do you do you miss the Midwest at all? Or are you are you really you know content and happy with with being on the East Coast?
1: Can I say both and? Yeah,
0: that's fair.
1: Um, I I really miss certain components of the Midwest. I, I miss the pace of life where I could get up in the morning and go hunt and get to work, you know, nine o'clock or whatever and have a good two-hour hunt in on wild birds mm-hmm. and work my dogs. There's just nothing like that out here. I I've got, if I go to the club in New Jersey, it's, it's an hour. When I'm going out to the Orvis farm, it's three hours, one way to go train dogs. So, it's, I mean, every day is a commitment. So I, I miss that opportunity to just go get out there and work dogs and the pace of life that allows that to be a part of the rhythm at the same time. I do love the culture, uh, the, the foodie culture, the wine culture, <laughs> The brewery culture, all of that stuff that comes with being in the mid Atlantic. So I, I can't complain, but I, yeah. but I do miss certain things about the Midwest, particularly when it comes to bird dogs.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. So you said you, I mean, you grew up hunting, tell us a little bit more about kind of your upbringing. So you said, you mentioned your dad was already into Brittany's, French Britneys. Um, so is that just something you just kind of, again, just were born in and do you know anything different or, or share some of those, those memories growing up of like, what was your, like, did you all just know you wanted to hunt? You wanted to be with bird dogs.
1: Yeah. So I, I didn't always know that I wanted it. Um, I grew up the stories told, right. You don't remember your childhood all the way. Um, but the stories that have been told were of mom, dad went from coon hounds to GSPs to American Britneys to EBs or French Britneys, as we call them. Um, and the, or that order was very intentionally set by my mother based on children, being able to work with these dogs and live with mm-hmm. these dogs in particular, having puppies mm-hmm. um, and, and the, the dams and their personality with their puppies with young children. So I, the first dog that I really remember was when I was probably one and a half was an American Brittany that my dad had right before he got his French Brittany's. Um, and she was a great dog, but she was, she was just not quite chill enough for my mom because I would, they they had a dog door going out to the porch and then her name was Trixie. She was out in a kennel in the backyard. They would find me having crawled through the dog door at (laughs) one year old, And crawled into her kennel and be chilling with the puppies in her whelping box. (laughs) And so I, I literally like, I I don't have any memories of life not being with bird dogs. Yeah. And the reason that we have French Brittany's is because that was the first dog that my mom finally said, actually, they love Josh as much as they love their own puppies. That's Mm. cool. And so I'm, I'm the oldest of five and, and it was the same way with all of my siblings. The dogs just love, Loved kids, loved being with them. Didn't care if they're, you know, grabbing at puppies, mishandling puppies because they were too little to know what they're doing, kind of thing. Yeah. All that stuff. So that was kind of my introduction. I've been with French Brittany since I was two and a half. I have always loved going out with my father. I went through the typical high school phase of it wasn't so cool to hang out with your dad. <laughs> Right. So b- yep. I was a big baseball guy. So I did a ton of baseball, went to baseball stadiums with friends. Like that was my life through high school and then into college. When I was in college it was really when kind of the Iowa swoon happened with wild birds. Pheasant mm. numbers were way down. Quail were almost non-existent. Mm. Um, and then coming out of college, I got my first dog personally for the kennel but the first dog that was actually mine that I had a stake you know, money and a stake and whatever. Okay. Um, it got kind of back into bird hunting a little bit. Um, not even a lot. I was still more of a deer hunter at that point because it was social. It was a social event. Sure.
0: And were you still living in Iowa at this this point?
1: Yeah. I went to high school in Iowa, college in Iowa, the whole nine yards. I, I would go back and forth for deer season every year when I was in, when I was in undergrad, um, in college and all of that stuff. Uh, that being said, once I got this little dog and I kind of, I graduated college whatnot, I was really looking to get back into the bird game, uh, into upland hunting and things like that. And then I ended up moving to Jamaica for two years oh, wow. uh, where I ended up meeting my wife, working with the church down there. Great stuff. But that dog that I had got ended up being a kennel dog with dad, Sure. Part of the part of the group, right? Part of the crew, part of the ship kind of thing. Um and so I came back from that not having a dog because she had become one of the one of dad's dogs at that point. Uh didn't have any hunting property, ended up moving out to Maryland, taking a job at a church out there and tried to bow hunt for a little bit. And I just I I, I had lost that fever. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I, we there was kind of I didn't go have through
0: se- seasons. Yeah, you go through like Yeah that pack. I mean, it's still, it still might be a passion, but it's, it's, it's you're, you're sitting out there in a the deer stand going, I'm, I'm kind of wishing I was with bird dogs or mission, you know, something else.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. the other thing I realized is like, I, if I'm sitting in a tree stand and this is, I mean, this is really a bad reason to get back into it maybe, but I realized sitting in a tree stand as a pastor, I was like, I am, this is totally me time. There is no relational ministry happening here. There's no opportunity to talk to people here. <laughs> I'm sitting quiet as a church mouse, freezing my cajones off. I can't even justify this <laughs> in the scope of having little time. Sure. And so I thought about it. And you know, bird hunting is a relational sport, right? It's something you do with friends. You can talk while you do it. You can walk while you do it. You know, it's not a standalone kind of thing. Yeah. And the dog that I had bought before I went to Jamaica was six or six or so at the time, six or seven. Um, and was getting towards the end of her life. And so I, I told dad, I said, Hey, I I want a pup out of, out of her before she's retired. And he said, all right, you pick the male. And so I, I looked around the country and I found a male that was a grand champion of the breed and a champion of the show ring called the guy up, got, got it done, got the breeding done. And I said, I really want a tricolor male (laughs) for myself. Worst, worst go in that you could have, right? As you know, in a bird dog, never pick color, never prerequisite color. (laughs) I've heard
0: you, I've heard you and your dad talk about
1: you guys get requests all the time for color, color, color always. And the reason I asked for it is I, I have always loved and had orange and white dogs that were my dog, but it was such a market trend that. You know, dogs of color, those tricolors are so pretty. Mm-hmm. That chocolate color is so pretty. You know, the, the liver dogs, whatever. And I, so in my mind, I was like, out of this dog that was mine, I would really like something that I can breed to a lot of stuff that people will like. Well, Tess had five puppies. That was the, that was the bitch that I had gotten in college. Okay. She had five puppies, one male. <laughs> and he was orange and white. <laughs> it, and the, the one like non sequitur for me was that it needed to be a male i didn't want another female okay. we were living in one bedroom apartments we still are um i wanted a male that was going to be a more personable dog and less place-oriented dog because sure. place wasn't a big thing for us because we're we're very mobile sure and so when it came out to be an orange white male that's that's what you got. That's moose. That, that is moose. That's <laughs> the, the dog that the moose. you've heard me talk about. That people have seen me post about things like that.
0: So uh, that was, that was your choice. And, and that's what you're going with.
1: So that, that, that was it. And when he, you know, he, he started his first, so that got me back into bird dogs. That got me back into upland hunting. It really launched me to field trials as well. Mm. I got, I picked him up at eight weeks in Iowa, drove him back out with my wife um, he spent the first 18 months of his life with me trapping pigeons in alleyways in Washington, DC <laughs> and training him on the Washington mall
0: next nice. to the Washington
1: monument. So we would go out there right at daybreak and I'd put pigeons out and kick traps <laughs> next to the Washington monument because it was the only place I had that I could go work, work him. Sure. Uh, with any kind of length. So that, that's, that was his start in the game. It, terrible start as far as like <laughs> I ideal like there was no cover I couldn't let him break loose and run like there was none of that but he was just a dog that had it genetically and yeah it was what we had to work with and it, it got me that's, back into the game
0: that's awesome man couple couple questions actually this is kind of a good segue into moose because I wanted to definitely dive into him and and just what he offers he seems like a really special dog um when Because I guess two questions I'm going to ask both. So I don't forget one. When did you kind of know you wanted to get down the trial route? Was that always a family thing or was that something you kind of just developed? That's question number one. And number two, similar to training, like where did you, so you pick up moose. Did you have any prior experience? Did your dad teach you? Like, where did you pick up that? Hey, I'm going to put pigeons out and work on pointing and all those kinds of things. So kind of a twofold question there for you.
1: Yeah. So trialing and training, trialing. No, I really had no inclination towards trialing when I got news. My dad hadn't done it in probably. He did it with the GSP that he had, like before I can remember. And he did a little bit with the American Brittany that I mentioned earlier, um, but he had never done it with any of our French Brittanies. He just gotten so busy with kids and life and work that it was one of the things he had to choose to give up in life was the field trial stuff. And I hadn't really ever heard about it. it. It hadn't really made a difference for our kennel, whether or not we did or didn't at, at that point. Um, one thing, as you know, but maybe other people don't know is the French Brittany is kind of a cult breed, right? It's, sure. it's got followers, it's got believers and naysayers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you're a believer, you're all in sure. And if you're not, you're all out. And that's kind of the way it is, um, with, with the breed and for good reason, it's, a breed that doesn't run as big as a lot of other field trial breeds, but is, has a a different type of personality that's easier to handle in the house. And is a little bit more, almost golden retriever, like, um, as a couch potato sort of thing (laughs) while having good bird drive. So it's really kind of this in-between dog that, you know, you're going to have lovers and haters of, um, but anyway, so field trials for me, honestly, I'm, I'm competitive as all get out. (laughs) And so my brother has a dog. His name is Ray. He is four years older than Moose, something like that. And I've got a friend, Matt, who has a number of dogs out of our kennel. And he has his own kennel now as well. Um, But he and my brother started going to a couple field trials while I was living uh, in in D.C. Uh, Sorry. And my friend, Matt, got into it. My brother had a really bad experience. He had he had a dog in in an amateur stake that went on point, quail hopped, he didn't fire the gun. He didn't know the rules all that well. The the judge was unclear about expectations. (laughs) And once the bird hopped and took off, the dog went and my brother's dog got picked up. And so my brother was like, I'm never playing that game again. Forget (laughs) it.
0: Just kind of ruined it for him.
1: Right. Like that's unrealistic to hunting. If the, if the bird goes, my dog should want to go find it kind of sure. thing. And my friend, Matt was like, no, it's, it's a good thing. I'm all in. Um, ironically Matt doesn't really feel trial that much anymore right now anyways, because he also has a lot of kids and he's busy, sure. but all of this competitively drove me to say, if these dogs are doing this, I know what my dog is, sure. or at least I think I know what my dog can be. So I want to go play too. Um, so I, I actually I sent him to a, another friend of ours who is a trainer as well um, for a month before the next September's field trial. And Moose would have been just over a year. Okay. Um, and sent Moose out for a month of training. Went out, picked him up for a field trial that was in, at the same club as where this guy trained. Um, put him down. Had a ton of fun. Was immediately addicted, and then yeah. just started putting him down. And started asking for advice. What do I need to do? What is his next step? You know, what are the things I need to work on? Whether it's dog work, handling work as, as, a, as a handler, et cetera, and picking up these, these little tidbits. And I just, I got addicted to it. Um, and then as far as the training goes, that same club actually offered a George Hickox clinic uh, the following okay. summer when Moose would have been just two. Okay. Yeah, I think just two just two or just three. I may have missed a year in there. Regardless, went to that, met George, and my, I was not a very good trainer at the time. Um, as far as training standards go, there's a sure. lot of guys who say they can train a dog. I could train a dog. I wasn't a good trainer Sure. Um, when mm-hmm. it comes to like, I can fix your dog's problems. Sure. Gotcha. I can show you tools. I can I can show you different drills, yeah. things like that. But so, so I, early, I
0: early on, it sounds like you were just kind of like, just kind of doing what you knew, what you've seen with moose, getting the basics kind of. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep.
1: W- wing on a string, you know, popping birds when we <laughs> busted in yep. like all of the bad ideas for training steadiness, <laughs> but that, that guys have told you for years, right? Like if your dog goes in, flush the bird you know, if you want to see your dog point, put a wing on a string and make them stand there and look at it. Like all of those things that are sure. just not philosophically yeah. good ideas for dog training. Sure. Were the things that I did incessantly because I, yeah. I didn't, didn't know know I di-
0: didn't know any different. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I actually, when I started training Moose to Point, I, I bought six pheasant wings on Amazon. There you go. Th- three little, you know, the, the squirt scent tubes bottles. of pheasant scent. Yep. Um, I tied fishing line around him. I would bring him out. We lived right next to the community pool that had maybe a quarter acre of mowed lawn next to it with like <laughs> kind of a hedgerow at the backside. And I would, I would tie his leash off on the, on the chain link fence of the community pool, I would douse a wing in pheasant scent <laughs> tied to a fishing line. And I would drag it through the grass and bury it in some little pile of wood on the hedgerow. <laughs> And that's all the training he had, like yeah, that and birds on the Washington monument that I had trapped, you know, pigeons was all that we had to work with. Cause I just didn't know any better and I didn't have any space, um, but his genetics carried through. And so the training really, for me started after the trialing, like I was trialing with him, loved it, was addicted to it. He was a fun dog to work with. Yeah. He corrected a lot of my mistakes early on. He still does. Uh, but then at that George Hickox clinic was, that was really kind of the turnkey moment for me and for our kennel in a lot of ways. Uh, because somewhere around the end of it, George came back to me and he said, your dog's my favorite dog here. If you ever want me to work with your dog, let me know. I would be happy to take Mm. him to work with him. Wow. And he had never, he had never taken a Brittany into camp before. Yeah. Um, and I was like, what, well, that's pretty cool. (laughs) So I, uh, I try yeah. to keep in touch with him. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's an honor to hear that. Oh, yeah. I didn't oh my really gosh, know yeah. it meant. Sure. So, so kind of just walk down that path gently and slowly keeping in touch with him, you know, doing the drills that he gave me to do, checking back in with an email, Hey, this is what's going on. What should I do next? Things like that. Ended up booking him to come out um, to our club in Iowa to do a clinic that I couldn't actually attend. Cause I was living in Philadelphia at that time already. Um, but he came out and he did it, uh, he stayed with my parents and that's where him and my dad became good friends, Uh, Okay. which kind of exploded the whole kennel vision into being a programmatic thing with George. Um, and this, you know, this whole idea of not just being kind of dog training, but whole kennel, you know, program when you're evaluating puppies, when you're starting puppies, when you're breeding litters. You know, all the way through, kind of started devising this this really in, intentional program. Yeah, I um, got everybody on board, and then last year, or whatever it was, uh, summer of 2020, Moose went out to George. Dad brought him out. Dad got to ride the prairies. Dad fell in love with the program all over again. Hmm. Um, and then I went down to George last winter in Georgia where he winters, um, and, and worked moose in a number of his pointers for a week with him off horseback and just, you know, that's, really, that's
0: incredible. Yeah. And, invested in it. Yeah, man. Let's, since we're kind of on that, let's just dive in a little bit. Again, you touched on kind of that whole, more of a holistic view of your kennel. It's not just breeding dogs. It's not just training dogs. Talk about that and expand on that a little bit more. Cause again, it's, it, it appears like you have quite a few, uh, quite a big influence of George Hickox in your program right now. Just kind of talk on the different components. Like what are you guys doing? What have you implemented uh, recently um, with Trinity Bretons?
1: As so implemented as far as George, just the overall kennel uh, program over, philosophy.
0: Oh, yep. Yeah, overall, overall philosophy.
1: Yeah. So our, our goal, and this is, I mean, it's, it's always six of one half dozen the other, right? um when you talk about anything for a long time within the breed there has been a a both and or no not even a both and an either or Hmm. push um we want dogs that are your classic foot hunters preserve style 50 yard dog that's really beautifully built and can show really well in the show ring and you've got this other desire that is I want to be able to go and compete in every venue I can put my dog down in, whether it's NAVDA, whether it's NASTRA, whether it's AKC, UKC, whatever, um, and show out my dog. And what we've seen in the last five years, I would say, most guys who do the trial game or the breeding game, I think would agree with this, is we've lost some of that that go, that race, that drive to really – get out there and go find birds in, in favor of dogs that are structurally right. Hmm. Um, and by structurally right, I don't mean the ones that are running aren't structurally right. What I mean is we've given up some of that because we want a dog that has more bone or is more, a little bit more square, um, or has, you know, the right front angulation in their chest or, Has the right stop, you know, from the forehead down to the muzzle, the right, the right drop there and and things like that. Um, And I think it's cost us as far as breeding goes. And we've also had historically, and this isn't exclusive to our breed at all, but we've also had historically a desire to chase the hot dog,
0: Hmm.
1: right? Like, you know, Jimbo is winning Every field trial he's in, we should all breed to him. (laughs) Sure. Regardless of whether or not he actually complements what we have, he's winning. So let's go ahead and breed to him. And we we end up with some issues that way, breed wise. Um, So for us as a kennel, what we've really done, um, for better or for worse, you know, time will tell. Hmm. Uh, But we've really said we have an ideal. And what we look for in dogs, we have a foundational line out of France that we want to really cement our lineage on as far as our genetics and our kennel. Um, and we know what kind of run, what kind of structure, what kind of look we're aiming for. Um, and that for us is a more athletic build. It's out of the Alpagerie lineage out of France, which means nothing to most people here. Um, but if you look back, it's in most of our pedigrees. Uh, and these are dogs that just, they tend to run bigger. They're built a little bit longer than they are tall, which is pretty typical of all field trial dogs that do well because it allows them to move a little faster. Um, at the same time, they have, you know, the, the right conformational structure to be able to be what they're supposed to be at the same time. Sure. And you see, so you, you see this balance play out in like Moose being one of the top field trial dogs of our breed in the country right now, if not the top dog, um, a, able to break out at three, 400 yards off horseback and compete against pointers, setters, GSPs in the AKC open venue. Um, at the same time, we're back to back years. We've won the national elevage as the French Brittany breeder in the U S with the most excellence and consistency in our breeding program. Ang- our dogs look the same and they look right.
0: Sure. <laughs> they, they do look good. They do look good.
1: So, so that's all, that's all kind of what we're aiming for. And, and yeah. where George plays into that is the identification and evaluation of those dogs at a young age. So we're not always going out before five years ago. We, we didn't have anything that had our own name on it. Sure. You know, we'd go back to the lines that we knew and we'd bring it in. And, and now we're getting to a place where everything that we will have in our kennel Within three years, we'll have our name on it as the pedigree or the first generation back because we sold a, a male or a female and then brought a puppy out of that back in.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So, it, um, go real quick. Going back to that kind of that confirmational correctness you talked about in the beginning a little bit is the, does that mean are people who are who are breeding? Let's just talk about the Epignol Bretons right now do you think is it, is it because they're going after that's a priority to them over the dogs that have the drive and the race and, the the winning are people breeding more for the look, do you think? And you, cause you were saying there, they were kind of comes a point where they were almost prioritizing that more. Is that, would you say is, are these elevating that over other things?
1: I would say, sorry, I was going another cup of coffee. Oh, you're good. Um, I would say it's not on them intentionally to go after that exclusively. Um, part of that is sort of where I need to be careful about this. Cause I am, <laughs> I am, I do play the UKC game and I, and I like the UKC is a lot. Um, part of that is the judge's desire in that game currently to see closer working dogs So it removes that kind of as a criteria for some breeders because they can go, they can go champion their dog in the field. If it's a 75 yard dog, Hmm. because we have enough judges that that's all they want. Um, if that's the case, you can make just about any dog get out to 75 yards. Sure. Right. It's, it's not rocket science to get a dog that far. It's hard to get a dog that wants to be at 50 to 300. Sure. It's not hard to get a dog at 50 to 75. Um, and so when that's the case, then breeders start, can start looking at what is kind of the niche thing right now? What is the head structure that people think is cute? You know, what is, what is the color that people think is desirable thing? And they can start breeding that way, knowing that it doesn't really matter what the field drive is because they can get that title on their dog, um, in the field as well. Um, I, I say that. Because I'm playing in horsebacks right now with Moose, because in the last three uh, UKC trials that he was in, he was DQ'd for being too far out, hmm. at like two hundred and fifty to three hundred yards.
0: Oh, and those are UKC.
1: Yeah. Okay. So he, they're walking stakes. One of them, you know, he was he went on point probably two hundred and fifty yards away. It was down a valley we could see that we could see him standing on the edge of a of a creek beautifully on point we got about halfway there and a rooster volunteered himself moose didn't move a muscle so i fired my cap gun kept walking moose kept standing we probably got within 75 yards a second rooster volunteered himself out of the same spot mm. fired my cap gun again moose didn't move a muscle got down there leashed him was going to work on. And the judge said, that's good. You know, you you can pick him up. I can't place him. And Hmm. I said, okay, what's up? Yeah. And he said, we couldn't have shot that first bird at the range that he flushed at because your dog worked too big. So I can't place him.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And so that, that was kind of what I'm talking about. When you asked your question about what do we breed for? Why things like that is, when, when that, when your dog working at that range is undesirable, it makes it way easier to breed for the other end Gotcha. of confirmation and show and kind of push them a little bit further into the field where you know that that's not super desirable.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. And, and again, it's all kind of the name of the game though. Cause if you were in an AKC, that would probably have been totally fine. Right.
1: Oh, I mean, you, I mean, I'm in the AKC now, right? And he doesn't run big enough to compete with somebody. <laughs> okay. Right. So th- there are days that he runs big enough, and there are days that there are dogs that are out at 500 yards that just smoke him
0: because
1: hmm. um, um, he's he's not built the same way as a pointer.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah, they're way different. Um, right. Did did he always run? Was he always kind of that? Because uh, 250, I would consider a big running dog, especially for an EB. Was he kind of always that way from the, from the beginning?
1: Short answer is yes. Longer answer is in a controlled manner. No. Okay. He always wanted to run big. So when he was two years old, my buddy, the guy I mentioned earlier, Matt ran him at nationals for me. Um, Cause I couldn't get off work for the Wednesday, Thursday of the Wednesday to Sunday trial. So okay. he was, he was running on Wednesday, Thursday for me and on the first day he lost him for an hour and a half found him back the second day they lost him for 3 hours oh jeez and he came, he came back out of the duck pond 3 hours later at, in south dakota um, <laughs> with snow on the ground so he he always has had that go sure but it's only been in the last like year and a half that it's been a controlled go where he wants to where he understands what we're doing and wants to work that way Gotcha. So he's been able to harness his go, but he's always had it there. It was just when he was on his game, so to speak in a field trial that we were playing, he would be a hundred yard dog when he was in his own world, he would be a 500 yard dog. Okay. But he would be totally out of control.
0: <laughs> no, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, they're like, Hey, this is fun for me. I'll see uh, see in a couple hours. and
1: <laughs> Right.
0: Let me, let me know when the ribbons come out. <laughs>
1: So, oh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's awesome. just kind of who he is. It's how he's built. That's yeah. why it makes it easy for me to to play a new game with him um, and also easier for me to to take that he's too big for this game mentality and say, okay, I'll play another game with him. Yeah, absolutely. No big deal.
0: Um, okay. So we've, we've kind of dabbled around talking about field trials a little bit. Let's just dive into field trials. Um, I know there's, we, we were chatting a little, even a little bit before this A couple different ones. We want to kind of break down, talk about, share your experience on what you're currently running in some of your experiences with, uh, with each of the, each of the different trials that you've uh, done specifically with, maybe with moose.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Moose, Moose and a number of our dogs, but Most of our dogs and most of my time has been spent in the UKC running UKC field trials, which are all walking trials. Um, I would say the majority of them are liberated trials, not wild trials, meaning the birds aren't, you know, naturally there. We go plant the birds. Um, And in the UKC, all of those type of trials that are called liberated, where you plant the birds, you have to retrieve every bird that's pointed. It's shot in the field live time. You got to retrieve it. Uh, in, in the gun class, which would be, you know, the, the amateur or, or derby style class, they got to get within 15 feet and in the open class, um, or the champion class, they, they got to bring it back to hand, um, okay. the retrieves on that. Okay. So it, that was the game that I, I initially played, uh, okay. with moose and with all of our dogs.
0: And so it's real, a good real quick, Josh, sorry. Can you just back up on, uh, can you just share a little bit about, cause I don't know much about the UKC stuff. What yeah. are kind of the, the different classes, the different events you can run your dogs and what are the different, um, I guess, yeah. Titles you could earn in that.
1: Yeah. So the, there's the tan, which is a test of natural ability. That simply means that you put your dog down and they put a couple coil quail out and it's for dogs under the age of two, I believe. And you get 10 minutes max roughly. Um, there's some leeway there, but 10 minutes ish for your dog to go out and find and point a bird for three seconds. Mm -hmm. And if they bust it after three seconds, that's fine. Um, and then you have to fire your cap gun and they, so they have to point a bird and not be gun shy. If those two things happen, you pass, you get your tan title. Um, there's the water retrieve test, uh, which is the bird has to be at least 30 foot out into a body of water. Um, half of which has to be with the dog's feet, not on the ground. So they have to be swimming for at least 15 of that 30 feet hmm. out and then back, um, and retrieve the duck back onto dry land within 15 feet of the handler. doesn't have to be the hand, but they have to get it all the way out of the water and, and onto dry land within 15 okay. feet of you. Um, the real field trial stuff after that, there is the gun class and the open class. Okay. Gun class offers a hunt title. And a gun title. A hunt title is one pass and two no one win and two passes or two seconds and one pass. Okay. Um, to get it. All the UKC stuff is competitive, not points based.
0: Okay. So it's is not it, is how good you or, do against is all a pass mark. Or fail?
1: It's not pass or fail. Okay. It's not it's not how you how good you do against a standard, it's how good you are compared to the other dogs you're running against that day.
0: Gotcha. So would you compare that to more of a AKC field trial then kind of yes. uh, how they, okay. How they judge it. Yep. Gotcha. Less when, you were like, about, when you were sharing about tan, that sounded maybe that's a little pass, bit, fail. that sounded a little bit like the AKC like junior hunt test or something like that.
1: It, yes. So okay. that is pass fail. That's not competitive as far as against other dogs. Same thing with the water retrieve. Okay. You do it or you don't. When they get into the field trial stuff, it's not points-based or standard-based There is the rules of what the dog has to do, um, but it's dog one, dog two, dog three, dog four on the day kind of thing. That makes sense. Um, So, yeah. So in gun class, uh, dog has to be steady to flush. Once the bird goes, dog can go. Um, Whether it's wild birds and it's a cap gun, the dog can go and chase for a while. But when you call them back, they have to come back in a reasonable time. If it's a liberated bird and it's shot, they have to retrieve it back within 15 feet. Um, in open class, the dog has to be steady to release. So wing and shot or wing shot and fall, depending on how, you know, whatever verbiage you use for that, but the dog has to stand there. If the bird's hopping in circles under their feet, it has to stand there. If the bird flies away and the gunners miss it, they have to stand there. If the bird's shot and falls, they have to stand there until the judge gives you permission to release your dog to go retrieve it.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: And they're supposed to make a beeline to the bird, pick up the bird and bring it back and deliver it a hand. Gotcha. So in, it, in many ways, it's a, I would compare it to, for those who know the Navda game, I would compare it to kind of the Navda field stuff. Cause they're not looking for range. Typically they're looking for bird manners, control, things like that. So it's, it's more, it's more about how they, act on the birds than it is how they actually cover the territory.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: Um, in particular in liberated stuff where there's birds planted all over the place, you know, a dog could have five fines in 15 minutes and you know, as well as I do, if a dog has five fines in 15 minutes, they've never really hunted. (laughs) Sure. Right. They're, they're from one scent bomb to the next without ever actually breaking out and doing their
0: thing. Working. Yeah. 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 Too, too easy.
1: So, so that's, that's a little bit of the UKC game. It's a lot about um, steadiness, bird manners, control, things like that. Um, not so much about seeing how a dog covers a field, hunts objectively, will take a line, things like that. Um, the other game that I'm just starting to play now is the AKC horseback game. And I'll do some walking stuff too, but they're similar in what they, what they look for. And that is they want a dog that's confident and independent and that will go cover territory. And rather than you working with your dog or handling your dog, the expectation is that you're showcasing your dog. Hmm. It is a grand drama really (laughs) in that game the the judge wants to see. And this is something I'm really trying to learn right now, still by working with some pro handlers that I've met out here that have been gracious enough to help me and kind of bring me into the fold and and teach me some of this handling stuff, but they want to see your dog break, you know, left 300 yards out and they don't want you to follow it. Mm. They want you to go down the course as it ought to go. And your dog is following the right line. They should take to make a solid move where the objectives are. And your scout is going to go out that way. And is and is going to, you know, let you know where your dog is heading and stuff like that. But you should be confident in that you're showing that your dog is going to cover this huge terrain yeah. and, and you're come not, back you're not worried. Himself. You're not
0: worried that your dog's lost or you, you, cause you can know yeah. your dog well enough at that point to say, yeah, I know he's breaking off 300 yards and he's going to come back around and stuck, stick this bird.
1: Yeah. And they want to see that dog having been gone for three or four minutes, flash across on the top of the next hill, <laughs> you know, and slam on point in a really stylish way. Like that to them is more impressive because mm-hmm you and your dog know each other well enough to not need to be an eye shot of each other. Sure. Kind of thing. So it's just, a, it's a totally different game. Um, yeah. It's one that plays better for bigger running dogs um, because they're able to showcase more moves that way.
0: Sure. What, um, what, um, sorry, sorry, UKC and, and now AKC horseback. What, what kind of made you want to go down the horseback side with
1: moose? Honestly, George told me after those couple of times where I moose got picked up for running too big. George told me, play a game that matters. (laughs) Um, And that's not me being facetious. It's not me being condescending at all. He just said, play a game that matters. Um, And I said, okay, what does that mean? And he said, (laughs) look at what all of the pros play. Do you have any pros playing UKC? And the answer Hmm. is no. Wow. Um, And I said, okay. And he said, so go play something the pros will play. Hmm. And I said, well, I can't play your game because, you know, his dog, like Bolt, his his. 24 time winning dog, five time dog of the year, whatever it is. That dog runs at like 800, 900 <laughs> yards consistently. And a, an EB can't do that. They just sure. simply can't they run can't. that. Right, right. Their legs aren't that long. <laughs> um, so he, yeah, he put me in contact with some folks out here and I, I kind of got hooked up with uh, the English setter club I was mentioning earlier okay. in New Jersey. And I just, I went out there and some guys started helping me out and that's, that's where Moose can run. It's where he can showcase, He's not going to be the biggest running dog out there because we've got you know ninety pound GSPs that are sure. in pristine condition. That's just how big they are. Or yeah. pointers, you know, the Tracys, people like that, running at these trials. Josh Ryder's never going to outshine or outhandle, you know, George or Mike Tracy, um, or some of these other guys. You know, Matt Barcelona, some of these American Field money-winning sure. handlers. But it's, it's a game that Moose can win. in.
0: Um, He he can, I I was going to kind of, kind of a, kind of a fun poke. Do you ever show up to these trials or these events and and people look at you with your 40 pound EB and going, Oh gosh, (laughs) like do do they ever kind of give you that look when you show up or, or is Moose proving enough that he's that people are like, Oh shit, this dog can, this dog can compete.
1: So two weeks ago, um, he took second, um, in, in the horseback, uh, gun class, In Polk, Pennsylvania, had tons of kind remarks. His one his one knock was a knock on me that he was yo-yoing because I wasn't sending him out often enough. I was letting him kind of circle back around and check in. Okay, which is a big a big no-no in the AKC horseback game. They don't want a dog that checks in. They want that dog to push out.
0: Okay,
1: keep moving forward. Go 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 go. Yep, and we'll find him on point. Um, And you and him should know how you guys work together and you should sing to him enough that he stays out in front of you and knows where you are by sure. you singing singing to him um this this weekend uh we are actually at a trial that had a bunch of pros and moose came in 5th one of them, the guy who's going to going to be helping me learn how to handle Matt Bassalone, who plays in the American Field Money Stakes game with his okay. pointers Okay. And as a pro, he had two of the dogs that beat Moose out of the five. Oh, it was wow. a field, field of 28. Moose got fifth.
0: Dude, that's awesome.
1: Two, two of the four in front of him were Matt's dogs and Matt scouted for me as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's just, he can hold his own. His bird manners are exquisite, which is a big thing. Yeah. Um, he, he just needs, he needs to, I need to learn how to send him down lines. Cause in the game we used to play, they wanted you to go, you know, Nine to three, quartering the field sure. the whole way down through the grass, like you would hunt, right? Yeah. Like hunting the prairies. You want your dog left and yep. right, staying in that back and tip, forth, but back and forth. In the AKC game, it's not how it is. Hmm. They want your dog cutting a line, hitting an edge row, 400 yards down. If there's an island of trees or bush or whatever, cutting over and objectively hitting that, that objective and things like that. So this is the, those are things that we're learning, but he can hold his own.
0: Yeah. Sounds like it.
1: The The only difference is in the UKC, if Moose ran his best run, he couldn't be beat. Hmm. In the AKC, if Moose runs his best run, he can definitely be beat by some of these other dogs that are just a totally different style of dog.
0: Sure. <laughs> They're just built differently. I just I, yeah. That's all it is. They're, they got 40, 50 pounds on him, you know, several inches and...
1: Yeah, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun to see that, to see him compete with those dogs, um, to see the competitive fire in him and also the respect that, that he gets from some of these other handlers being a 40 pound, you know, he's 37 pounds, I think at competition weight, being a 37 pound dog that keeps up with these dogs, um, says something to these other people too, which is fun to see.
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. Scott, you gotta be proud about that. You're showing up with this again, 37 pound dog to these, these big pointer trials. That's got to feel pretty darn cool.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Um, Talk about American field a little bit. You mentioned you touched on American field. Is that, what is, is that something totally different than AKC and UKC?
1: Yeah. So American field is really, (laughs) there is a lot of personality um, (laughs) stuff that goes into all these things as you may know, but American field is traditionally the, the pointer and setter trial or trial system throughout the country. And that is where the pros go to play. Um, that that is the money stakes games. That's you know the ten thousand to forty thousand dollar purses, you know, for the winners. Things like that. That's the game that like George Hickox plays with his dogs and his handler and things like that. Um, it's a whole different level of dog. It's in their open shooting dog class. Those dogs are half to three quarter mile dogs. Jeez. And in their all age or, Oh, you know, in their all age stakes, it's mile to a mile and a half dogs Wow, that they're running. And so, I mean, these dogs, you know, they're, <laughs> they're gone in a second.
0: You don't see them.
1: <laughs> and the, these are the kind of, these are the kind of dogs that you need a really good scout for that can like, you know, there's stories of scouts that will get down off their horse and look at a dog's paw print in the dirt and be able to tell if it's their dog or the other guy's dog. Oh my gosh. And follow it or not follow it because they know their dog that well, that they know the imprint that they make on the dirt. Wow. And it's so, it's that kind of level of game where they know their dog so well. Is your dog right handed or left handed? Wow. If he hits this edge, is he going to break right most times or left most times? You know, playing the wind with your dog's natural break is there enough of a win that he'll go against his right-handedness and go left or not quite enough and things like that. And these, I mean, these guys, they'll get off, these scouts will get off their horse <laughs> on all fours and look underneath the cover when their dog's on point Jeez. to scout out where the quail is sitting before they even walk into the brush. Oh my god! Um, like they're all in on it, high intensity, things like that. Um, but it's a, it's just such an eloquent game at the same time because sure. You're getting on a horse, you're riding along, and you're really watching a dog work. And there's so much unspoken, unseen, unless you know what you're looking for, that hmm. these handlers will turn a horse's head and a dog that's 700 yards off will see you know, a six-inch turn of a horse's head, and, and they no. will redirect in that direction wow. following the horse's head turn, right? And the handler says nothing. The dog doesn't come back. They just see that slight turn of the head and they go and they train their horses to find dogs. So they're not searching for dogs. Their, their horse is finding the dog for them kind of thing. So it's just, it's such an eloquent and professionalized game, but it's so much fun to see what these dogs can be. Um, and what's interesting to me is the UKC just bought American field. Um, oh, I
0: did hear that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I the think...
1: game that I was playing that yeah. wanted controlled and close working dogs <laughs> just bought the game. That is the biggest working, least controlled handling of dogs. Interesting. And, and they're the two will become one in some facet. So I'm interested to see what that will look like and how that will hopefully American field will help develop the UKC stuff. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens.
0: Absolutely. Have, uh, so with moose, have you been able to, at least as of yet kind of reproduce what you love about that dog into other dogs that you're seeing great potential in?
1: Yeah. So moose is pre potent as all get out, um, which is something super unique and we are incredibly grateful for. He produces better than he is, Mm. um, most of the time. So like right now, off the top of my head, I know of three dogs. There are many more than this um, that are in the pipeline, but I know of three dogs offhand that are what he is, if not better. So his daughter, right. Oni, who we own, she's got a litter of pups on the ground right now. It's her first litter. She runs at probably 200 yards. We have not roaded her. and get, We just bought her back from a, from a friend who actually okay. took her from the litter okay. um, that, that misproduced she'll run at 200 yards quite naturally. Um, and she has every bit of go that Moose has, but she's built better than he is. Really? So he produced a dog that has the same drive as he has, but is built better than he is. Um, we've got another dog named Odin who is built exponentially better than he is. I, this dog is a centimeter and a half taller than he is square. The bone on this dog's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could miss it. If he had the right, coat length coloration whatever you could mistake in him for a gsp
0: hmm.
1: like a, a big field built gsp well wow. um he's just built that way and he's a son of moose and and the dam is a very petite dam so it has nothing to do with her it's just sure. all this is wow. and that dog runs at 400 yards okay um, wow he's not trained so he runs <laughs> sure sure but he's at 400 <laughs> yards he a, has, friend of my, a friend he of mine has that
0: him. range yeah it's in
1: him yeah, yeah. it's genetically there um, and then the last one is the friend of mine who lives out here by me. Uh, he actually, he lives in Maryland. Um, but he's got a dog named Russet who will absolutely outrun news. Hmm. Um Unless he listens to this, I won't ever repeat that to his face.
0: <laughs> just uh, just but, don't tell him, just don't tell him you did a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, he's got this little dog who's a year and a half who is, I hate the word green broke because I think it's a farce. Your dog's broke or it's not broke. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's got this dog that is, he's now doing pyramid plants and we're proofing him for field trials. He's steady to release and he's running at 600 yards. Wow. Wow. Um, so he's a really flashy little dog.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. So the more, the more breeders and the more bird dog people I'm hanging around, the the consistent thing I'm hearing is that the. one of the biggest factors of a great dog is how they can reproduce themselves. And if, if they can't reproduce puppies that are, if not, you know, as good or better than them, you know, it's, it's still it can be a good dog, but that's, that's just really a, a big marker. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, so in Europe, they, they use a cotation system. Um, and, a, it's a six point scale, the best dog in the world, on their own capability can rate at the highest as a four out of six. Mm. They have, they have to produce at least three field trial champions, three or four field trial champions for them to be a six out of six. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Um, at the same time, a dog, that's only a two out of six. If they produce three or four field trial champions is a five out of six. So a dog that's a two rather than a four, can actually be a better dog in their really? system if it outproduces the four. Wow. Right. So they, they That's place a, a huge yeah. emphasis on, does wow. your dog reproduce or not? Yeah. Um, and we use, we use that system in our, in our program. So you'll see if you go on our website, EBBA, quotation, whatever at a six Okay. Um, kind of thing, because we want to just implement that idea, right? Like if, if this dog is producing it's worth what it, it is. Yeah.
0: It's worth reproducing. Yeah. Reproducing if, the puppies. If
1: it's not, it just will be somebody's hunting buddy.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, get into a little bit, two more big things I want to hit. Um, but before we you know wrap up, um, one is, uh, well, actually let's go, let's go down this route. Uh, the, and you know what I'm going <laughs> to, you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> is it the, the EOB? What's it called? I'm, I'm missing the, Oh, CO, COI. Yes. D O okay, I Okay. think I had my letters mixed up. COI. Give me, okay. This is for your average Joe, your average, you know, person out there who enjoys getting a little bit nerdy. W- give us a high level of what is COI? How does that infiltrate your breeding program? What does that mean to you as a breeder?
1: Yeah, so COI, and you really should talk to my dad about this because he nerds out on this like it's going out of style. Um, But it means coefficient of inbreeding. What we're talking about is inbreeding versus line breeding and how high a percentage of inbreeding you want in a litter to reproduce the maximum value of the traits that you want, acknowledging that you're also increasing risk, right? So you got a dog like Moose one of the best dogs, if not the best dog in the country in the breed right now, go out and do his thing. You can, you, I could sell myself on wanting to go really high on a COI breeding of his because I want to reproduce everything he has. Mm. Well, the God's honest truth is back behind his line through a a line known as San Luban. There were some knee issues. Mm. Um, And we know that if you put that back to itself, you can find, luxating patella, as an example, right? Uh, Not a prominent thing, not not something that moose reproduces, something that's behind what's behind moose, that if you put that back together, can show up again. So what's worth doing it, two fantastic dogs. So a lot of guys will say they want to keep their COI under 10%, coefficient of inbreeding under 10%, which is essentially nothing more than a shared grandparent. Okay. Right. So say Moose's mom's name is Tess. Tess couldn't be closer than grandmother on one side and grandmother on the other side. And you'd probably be you pretty safe bet that you'd be under 10%, depending on what else is in the lineage.
0: Okay. And that and 10% um, is kind of a general safe target you're saying.
1: That's what a lot of guys feel. Okay. Some guys will say they want to get as low as humanly possible. Some guys like us, we're really comfortable getting higher than that. Okay. Um, but 10% is kind of that cutoff mark of some guys get really concerned. If you're over 10, what things you're going to see pop up that you couldn't anticipate things like that. Hmm. So, but like, so with us, we've got a breeding right now on the ground that I think is, well, it's Hank and Oni. I think it's like 14%, okay. which we are incredibly comfortable with because the dogs that they share are dogs that have no health issues. No genetic issues in their background, nothing known about them and fantastic field dogs that are built big. Okay. So we're going to, what we're looking at out of, out of this litter is dogs that are going to be 300 yard dogs. Plus if we, if we bring them up the right way and now a dog's range, by the way, is only minutely genetic. It's mostly training. Sure. Um, but dogs that have the capability of going and doing that while being really well-built dogs. Um, at the same time, and then we can go breed that to anything that we want to, that isn't its own line, you know, at 14%, I'll want to outcross that a little bit, um, to put it with something else. So that that's kind of, that's our, our line of thinking is if we can get something between probably 12 and 25, we're getting close to cementing those genetics. Okay. And, and most of those litters, like the one I'm talking about right now, we'll keep until 16 weeks. We'll do hips. We'll do knees. We'll do eyes. We'll do elbows. You know, we'll do the DNA test on it. We'll do all of it before the dogs go home because we're truly doing those litters for us to keep some dogs Gotcha. Um, for the, for the program.
0: So say, say you did a, did a breeding with a 25%. So is that, let's just pretend, is that say your max that you'd be comfortable with?
1: How it's much- hard to get a whole lot higher than that. Cause that's, that's mother to son.
0: Okay. So I guess that was my question. What would a 25% breeding look like? Like who, what, what kind of sh- sharing would be going on as far as uh, mother's daughters, sons, all that.
1: Yeah. So 25 would be essentially mother to son. Okay. Um, higher than 25, you can get higher than 25. You can, you can go to siblings, but not litter mates. You can go to half siblings, things like that where you just compound the closeness of the fathers and things like that at the same time, where you can get a little higher than that. But like one of the dogs, it's in our dog's our dog Tika's background, a dog named Shun. He is the product of no, I'm sorry, his son. I no, he is. He's the product of his mother being his grandmother.
0: His mother being his grandmother. Okay.
1: So she was bred to her son to produce shun, this dog named shun. Um, and he was one of the best dogs that ever lived in Europe and has produced fantastic dogs throughout his history and his lineage as well, but he's 22%. Okay. Or so, 22
0: so, and a half percent. So, so pretty high.
1: So, so he's yeah. So he's, how does, he's basically mother to son.
0: Okay. And so how does this all then, okay. Line breeding. Uh, give me over what's line breeding and how does that differ from the COI?
1: So line breeding is more along the lines of following the same, um, the same dog, the same genetic trait, right? So I want to keep, say his name is Ralph. I want to keep Ralph consistently in here. So I'm going to breed Ralph to this female, have puppies, breed Ralph to that dog's puppy. So skip a generation but keep Ralph in it the whole way and line breed on that oh, Ralph dog. Okay. Um, COI is more about the larger picture of what's behind the dog. Um, so like oh, trying to think with the last, the last best dog, uh, shadow Oak bow. You heard of him? The I English heard, setter.
0: heard, yeah, heard a name. the name.
1: The last English setter to win American field open shooting dog, dog of the year kind of thing. Yeah. Great dog. Um, he's a dog that has been line bred a lot because of his name. It really doesn't matter what he's producing to a lot of the people Um, that are breeding to him because of who he is. They're going back to him, keeping a daughter, taking one more generation, going back to him again, things like that. Um, keeping shadow Oak bow in the pedigree is important to them. And there are some dogs that that's worth experimenting with. We're doing that with a dog named Ray right now, um, that we're trying to get him back into the pedigree as many times as possible before his, I mean, he's long since dead, but before his semen is, is gone. sure. That doesn't mean it's going to work because that's not COI. That's not genetically proven that he is prepotent, that he's going to reproduce at his own level. What we know is how good he was and how good some of his sons were. So we're trying to find that same formula back. Um, but it's all based on him, but it's based on him, not based on, all of the genetic pool that involves the breeding when you're doing line breeding.
0: Gotcha. And COI, and COI, COI is, is
1: reverse of that. It's, it's, it's the genetic pool. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Okay, dude, good job explaining that. Cause that I have heard you on a couple different podcasts. I've, I've listened to some other guys talk a little bit about COI and I, I, I get to that nerdy side and my head just explodes. Cause I'm like, Whoa, I I don't quite get it all. It's confusing, but this, I I can wrap my head around that actually. Good, good job. Good Good job. That was, that was well done. Um, Okay. So anyone else's head, so that it doesn't explode. Let's move on to the, uh, the Trinity Upland Academy. Um, What, what is this? I think this is kind of something you've started with George Hickox, right? Which we've touched on a little bit, but expand expand on what this, this Trinity Upland Academy is.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's brand new. Um, The goal is that it develops, you know, long-term and into becoming its own real entity within the umbrella of the, of the Trinity, you know, identity. But, um, what it is as of right now is a partnership with George Hickox. He comes out two to three times a year. Um, he does a beginner's clinic an advanced clinic and a finished clinic. Hmm. Um, we haven't gotten to a finished clinic yet because you have to advance through the first two stages. And last year was the first year we did it. Um, but he comes out and he works with us and he's, he's only taking, we're only taking people who have Trinity dogs or a deposit on a Trinity dog because he wants to know the genetics behind it are worth working with and give one-on-one time to every dog that comes there and every handler that comes. Um, So that's the goal is to say, you know, George is backing our genetics. We're backing George. We're putting together this program where, you get to learn from the best trainer in the country on how to develop your bird dog. And he is going to give you his contact info and you're going to have an open line for life to, to touch base with him, say, Hey, I've got this going on. Send him a video. He'll get back to you. He's great about it that way. Um, but just helping us develop a, a long-term program for our clients, um, and for our dogs that are with our clients to be able to have this, this in to a professional dog trainer and handler, um, that most of us never have access to. Um, so that, that's the goal of it right now. Long term, you know, the, the hope is to expand that and be able to invite people to come and board dogs. Um, for me to be able to go up and, and work with George in the prairies with client dogs and things like that. Um, there's large goals there, but as of right now, it's these it's it's based on these clinics and coming down and learning the George Hickox program, getting you know, FaceTime with George, getting a program for the next year with George for your dog, being able to come back and reevaluate and get your next steps yeah. um, and having that constant, you know, op- open line of communication with one of the best that's ever done it uh, yeah. to help you develop that's, your own bird dog.
0: That's incredible, man. I mean, a, f- a few days with George, um, I was bummed. I missed, I missed that one last year he did. Um, Cause that is just, I think m- so valuable that you can sit down FaceTime with, again, one of the, you know, my best trainers, um, that is living today. <laughs> it's just pretty incredible. Um, when is, when's your next, uh, clinic?
1: It is in June, June. Give me a sec to pull up my calendar. It is June 17, 18, 19. Okay. In 24, 25, 26 are the next two.
0: Okay. Nice. Very cool. So awesome, man. Well, a couple more things uh, as we, we wrap up here. Um, so, kind of a closing question I like to ask every guest here just to get their advice and perspective. Um, someone out there who's listening to this, who, let's say, um, in your case, they're either a, a brand new upland hunter, they maybe picked up their first bird dog, um, or maybe they're just getting into trials. I know we talked a lot about trials and testing of dogs. Someone out there who's just getting into this, what's some advice you would give them uh, who are are just getting into this uh, world we call, you know, bird dogs.
1: My advice would be to find a program, find a trainer, find a hunt test style, whatever it is that fits what you want to do and stick to that and block out the white noise around you that says there's other better ways and stick with what you know that you want for your dog. Cause there's a thousand different ways to train a dog. And there's only one way that's going to work for you for what you want.
0: Mm. That's good, man. That's really well said. <laughs> work stick with what, what's going to work for you. And, and, and I think something I talk about on the podcast quite a bit is set your own goals and expectations for your, for your hunting, your style, your dog. Cause so, so, so many of us can, we can hear, Oh, I should be doing this or I should be doing that. And you got to really sit down and Hey, what are your personal goals? what are you, what's your goal with your dog with how you want to hunt, where you want to hunt all those kinds of things?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if, if you want a dog that goes and puts up birds for you and you don't really care how steady they are, then, then you don't need a dog that's steady to release Yeah. and just be honest about that and, and have fun with it. And that's yeah. great. And yep. it's cool. But don't <laughs> exactly. pressure yourself to making a steady dog to release. If that's not really what you want, because it's a lot of time and effort.
0: Yep. And just because you heard it on some podcast or heard it from some guy who said you should,
1: that's all you want that don't do it.
0: That's exactly right. Simple as that. All right. And then last section here, uh, we're gonna go through some rapid fire questions. Uh, so kind of off the cuff, just give me your, your quick response. Um, I always tell everyone if you need to expand, feel free. (laughs) There's no no pressure to have to keep it short, but, um, anyways, what, uh, when you are getting out to hunt, what gun are you carrying out into the field?
1: I'm really, really looking to get the, uh, the new Upland gun companies. Oh, uh,
0: you're, you're going to nice. get a
1: 28 inch side by s- or a 28 gauge side by side. Dude, double, that'd be awesome. Double trigger from them. I that'd currently mean. carry the Bob white, uh, G2. Oh,
0: nice. Okay. Very nice. Is it in the, uh, that green OD finish or is it the blue? Barrels? I do
1: not because I don't, I don't like any extra weight on my gun okay. and that OD finish is heavy.
0: I'm sure it, it looked. I when I first saw it, I was like, "That is terrible." But then, the more <laughs> I started looking at it, I was like, "That I don't know. Could be cool." But added weight is a good is a good point.
1: It's it's cool looking, but it's built for waterfowl. I feel like. Yeah,
0: absolutely. The other thing I I didn't love about that was the uh, has the swivel studs on the barrel and the stock, and that was That's just right. a, a annoying as heck to me. That was kind of actually the biggest factor why. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't look any further. Um, favorite breed besides the Epignol Breton.
1: Is there another breed? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I would, I would have to admit that there are two ways I could go with this. My first answer would be, I would go with a classic long tail pointer, um, okay. at a really good lines, as long as it had that cracked straight poker tail. Um, that would, it's a dog that I would have a ton of fun learning how to handle and run, you know, a seven, hundred, nine hundred yard dog would be a real treat and also trick for me to learn. I would have fun <laughs> with that. Secondarily, I would love to have a little field bred cocker. Oh um, yeah. So I could keep my dogs steady and have a dog in the bird field that I could go send on retrieves. Yeah.
0: That'd be, that'd be pretty sweet.
1: That'd so be one of those two. I'd probably lean pointer, but I could really cherish a good field bred cocker. Uh, I'll to accept, keep my Brittany I'll, steady.
0: I'll accept both those answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, quick side question, actually random. Do, uh, are most of the dogs that you're breeding, are they natural retrievers? Just kind of curious.
1: Yeah. Most all of okay. them are, um, they're like moose. I use mooses as an example all the time. Cause he's the dog that's been with me all the sure. time and I don't have the kennel with me. It's with dad, but, uh, he was a natural retriever until he was one. And at one year old, he got spurred by a big old rooster, oh. um, straight away in the face. And he was done picking up birds. Oh, so okay. I, had to, I had to force fetch him okay. and now he'll go pick up anything on a dime. Um, but it's all command based. Sure. Um, in some ways that helps him with steadiness because he doesn't have that same desire to go on his own. Sure. Um, but it, it really was a hiccup that wasn't there genetically, but was man, nature made or man made or whatever. <laughs> sure.
0: Okay. Cool, cool. All right. A couple more here. Um, if you could pick one piece of uh, of training gear, I know you're doing a lot of training with dogs. Uh one one piece of gear. What would you what would you take out with you?
1: Take out with me.
0: Or, or use. I just say one piece of gear you had. Hey, all your training gear was gonna get burned up in a fire. What's the one thing you would save? Check court. Okay. Very valuable tool.
1: I can do almost everything I need to do with the check cord. A close second would be, um, the right e-collar for teaching Mm. a dog how to win a game. Mm. Um, so when we use the e-collar, we're teaching it, we're not using it to correct the dog. As far as discipline, we're teaching them how to turn it off by, by completing an act. They already know how to win. Sure. Um, so when I go into the field, when I'm actually hunting, I can't use a check cord so that Check cord and the e-collar are the same tool for me. Um, one of them is in the yard and one of them's in the field.
0: Yeah. Okay. Love it. Uh, favorite bird species to hunt for you.
1: My favorite so far that I have hunted is definitely the rough grouse. Okay. Um, in the North woods, pheasants are a lot of fun, but I grew up on them. So they're old news. (laughs) Uh, quail are the most stylish point that I'll ever see Mm. on a nice cubby a dog holding steady. My bucket list is absolutely sharp tails or sage grass.
0: There you go. There you go, man. You got to get uh, to North Dakota or even, uh, even South Dakota, get after those Sharpies.
1: I, I definitely want to go do that, but I haven't yet. So I can't say it's my favorite.
0: <laughs> no, I, I get it. Um, what would you pick a solo hunt with you and moose, let's say, or a group hunt with you and a couple buddies
1: and your dogs? That's an easy answer because I don't hunt moose.
0: (laughs) Oh, you don't hunt moose?
1: No. So it it would definitely be the the buddies. Um, Simply because of me being unable to guarantee the outcome of somebody else has a bird go up Sure. and guaranteeing his steadiness until I'm done field trialing him. It's not worth the variable reinforcements that he gets with somebody else shooting a flush bird and whatnot um, or having birds in his mouth. That being said, I chose bird hunting anyways, because of the relational aspect. I love walking through a field, talking with buddies.
0: Yeah. You did things say that like in the that. beginning. Okay.
1: Um, so it would definitely be hunting with friends, um, friends or strangers, but just getting dogs out in the field. I don't even like shooting birds um, all that much. I like watching dogs work and talking with friends. So the more dogs I can see work and the more friends I can chat with, the better it is for me.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Last one beverage of choice after I'll say after a hunt or after uh, a, a day
1: of training. Two fingers neat of Lagavulin 16 year scotch.
0: <laughs> okay. I'm really glad you said scotch. Cause I had no idea what the hell you were saying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a good, it's a good PD. I lay scotch. Okay. Um, my favorite beverage and goes great after a good day of hunting with a nice sweet pipe tobacco
0: <laughs> dude you, you thought this one out
1: <laughs> it's my like go-to it. man i, I, like get I can get done see you're,
0: you're you're glowing right now just talking about this
1: <laughs> it it's how i end my week
0: <laughs> there you go you sure that's just coffee you're drinking right now <laughs>
1: it is right now
0: <laughs> okay okay um josh this has been a ton of fun man um what, what's the best way people want to learn more about uh, you know, the Upland Academy, your, your breeding, just want to chat with you. What's the best way to uh, reach out to you?
1: Yeah. So look us up. Our website is uh, trinitybritons.com, uh, www.trinitybretons.com uh, On Instagram, we are at Trinity Bretons or at Trinity Upland Academy. On Facebook, we're at Trinity Britons as well look us up there, shoot us an email at trinitybritons at gmail.com. Come out, train with us. If you're out East, come out, hunt with us. If you're in the Midwest, come check out a trial, whatever you want to give us a call. would love to hang out with all of you.
0: That's awesome, man. Hey, great job on the website, by the way, too. I know you guys just, just kind of revamped that recently. Didn't you? We
1: did. Yeah. It was a labor of love.
0: It looks really good. (laughs) good. It's a lot, lot more user-friendly.
1: It's definitely cleaner.
0: Oh yeah, no, it looks great. So good job on that. Well, Josh, thanks so much for your time, man. This has been a blast, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on because I want to dive more into that nerdy side of of breeding and dogs and all that. We definitely would love to uh, get your dad on here sometime too.
1: Sounds good, man. Hey, uh, put down in your pocketbook next September, going out to Greg's place if you want to with me.
0: Dude, let's do it. I I, I skipped this year. I, I did too. I, I had a long I had a long week. Um, i was supposed to be there for two days had a long, great week in North Dakota, Montana. And, uh, I was just kind of ready to get home. My dogs were burnt out and, uh, I I emailed Greg and said, Hey, I'm so sorry. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to have to, uh, have to skip. And so definitely that'd be awesome next year.
1: Awesome, man. Well, I'll I'll let you know, I'm lining up end of September trip down there with him.
0: Absolutely. That'd be a blast. Cool. All right, brother. You have a great night. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.
1: Sounds good. See you, man. All right. Bye-bye. See ya.
0: And that is a wrap of episode twenty-four with Josh Ryder of Trinity Bretons. Josh, thank you so much, brother, for sitting down, chatting bird dogs, epignol Bretons, just giving us all the good stuff um, on this on this breed. So really appreciate it, man. Um, hey, like I said at the beginning of the episode, would really appreciate um, you leaving a rating and review on the Apple Podcasts as well, sharing your favorite episode uh, of the podcast series so far on social media. Um, go to one of my posts. Uh, Hit that little weird mail arrow And uh, share it to your stories And maybe just write Hey, uh, here's my favorite episode so far Give it a listen Hope you enjoy whatever it might be gonna help this podcast grow get uh, to out to more upland hunters bird dog lovers just like you so anyways guys really would appreciate it Um, I hope you're having a great start to your season so far Uh, be sure to uh, post some pictures tag me in them or just shoot me a message I love chatting uh, bird dogs chatting about your season how it's going you know what struggles you're facing what um, you know goals you've accomplished so far Uh, let me know how it's going we are, uh, gosh, nearing the end of September already. And so this has gone by super quick. I am definitely ready to get back out there. I had my two big trips early September and just, uh, I'm itching, i itching to get back out to uh, the fields behind my dogs. So anyways, let me know how it's going, guys. Excited to hear all your, uh, fun stories and success. All right. Until next time, if you are not fortunate enough to hunt with or own a Brittany, any bird dog, is better than no bird dog. Go put some miles on those boots and have fun.